This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. The author, Roy Sinclair's career extending from the National Film Unit to part-time as Christchurch Heritage tram driver to photojournalist with the press. Touring cyclists of whatever nationality face the same frustrations, rigours and delights of the road, leading to many happy encounters on the great Alpine Highway, sometimes an invitation to share meals of kiwi and Japanese flavour, expertly cooked by my Japanese partner, Haruko Morita, at our place. I remember there's David with his ten-gallon hat and a smile just as generous, American, retired, quiet-spoken, which is not always the case. There's Christian and Monique, newly married Swiss couple whose business card is simply inscribed, Around the world by bike. They set out cycling the day after their marriage. They had packed their bikes even before taking their vows. Harlico and I are still mustering the courage it takes to set off overseas into the great beyond, so we take a tentative trip to test our readiness for prolonged pedalling in a foreign environment. We're also testing refinement to Harlico's mountain bike. She's devouring outdoor activities catalogues for the trendiest clothes to go with the latest fashions. Eventually, I realise it won't do for me to go with wearing my old tramping gear, so I sport a new image too to go with my new 2003 Giant Yukon on suspension forks with 24 forward gears and light aluminium frame. It's a bicycle I could take apart with a set of Allen keys. I take the opportunity to depart from the press newspaper just before Christmas. Stresses of a difficult year, overweight and now jobless, I'm beginning to doubt my own motivation. Harlico's looking sportier by the day will leave me for dust if I don't make a move. We set out on what will become an 1,800-kilometer, five-week cycle tour via the west coast and home again via Oamaru and the east coast of the South Island. As before, we join the Otago Central Rail Trail at Alexandra. But something has changed. Gone is much of the old ballast, the coarse stones that form the bed of a railway, leaving it much easier to ride on now and many of the farm gates over cattle stops are redesigned, so walkers and cyclists haven't to stop to open and close so many gates. This time we detour from the rail trail to take in Omako, its commercial hotel haven to tired travellers since 1898, and six years later a railway station, once among the busiest in New Zealand for transporting stock. Today... It has family-friendly camping grounds and, in February, the Agricultural and Pastoral Association's annual gala. A&P shows there will soon be 125 years old, with a few being cancelled in 1918 because there was a worldwide influenza epidemic. 
1940, because of wartime petrol rationing. Only a couple of kilometres away, on the other side of the river, is former gold town Ophir. At its peak, with more than a thousand residents, it was the largest town in the Manuhirikia Valley. A gold strike here in 1863 explains why its fame quickly spread. Even the name Ophir is connected to gold. The Bible location where King Solomon got his gold from the Queen of Sheba. Its post office is New Zealand's oldest, once adjacent to a courthouse, school and police station, hospital and two hotels, two churches. But when the gold dwindled, and finally the railway line bypassed Ophir, its streets were left wide, buildings solid, made of schist or mud brick. Did Ophir founding fathers expect tram cars would one day glide through grand boulevards? It's lucky to count 40 permanent residents today. A ghost town with working post office, served by postmistress Val Butcher, who sets out our coffee cups on a tray before postmarking letters for New Zealand Post's rural mail car to collect. Tall, brightly coloured spears of hollyhock bloom spring up from the hard, dry ground that surrounds restored buildings, to preserve the post office for posterity, the Historic Places Trust, now Heritage New Zealand, bought it. We want to stay all day, but need to press on over the suspension bridge built in 1880 and still in use as single-lane access across Manuhedekia River. A tourist, seeing it from afar, decides to take a close look, blogging, A lovely old bridge that I spotted from the main road. There's a place to park, and you can drive over it. I'm surprised by its name. Daniel O'Connell, the Liberator. The name tells me something of the Irish who must have been the early settlers here. Indeed it does. Daniel O'Connell's the one who lobbies for the Irish to be both eligible to stand for, be elected, and, a right previously denied the Irish Catholics, to take a seat in Parliament's House of Commons. He leads Irish aspirations to repeal the Union of Great Britain and Ireland. We cycle towards Lauder, its name taken from a town in Scotland. There the similarity ends. Our National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research, NIWA, realised Lauder's clear skies, low horizons, dry atmosphere, southern latitude, make it ideal for atmospheric research. Here, our scientists observe and measure the presence of ozone, ozone-depleting substances, solar radiation, aerosols, and greenhouse gases. It's a popular place for astronomy, but we cycle towards it in sunny weather. The view from the cycle trail, not unlike that from when trains chuffed regularly along the line, now silent save for the crunch of cycle tyres on gravel. It's a huge blue sky. But then a house, an approaching town. Not that many locals live here. Century-old buildings are now bed-and-breakfast places. The former Lauder Railway School, bounding on the railway line, and the doctor's house and infirmary, just outside of town. By contrast, the Lauder Station outbuildings are not in use, awaiting a new role. I try to imagine what it would have been like to be a loco driver rattling past 
in another era. The old railway line now leads precariously above spectacular Poolburn Gorge and over high viaducts, including the Poolburn Viaduct, 108 metres long, 37 metres high. It inspires one visitor from overseas to write about the old rail route. In the warmer months, it's popular with cyclists. But when I visited in the winter, I didn't see anyone. Only two creatures strolling on the track. It seems you can't go far in New Zealand without seeing sheep. By the viaduct, Holico and I spot a large rock near the rail tunnel portal for our picnic lunch. Feasting on our fresh supplies from shopping at a four-square shop at Omako earlier in the day. As the afternoon sun casts longer shadows, we gravitate with others on the cycle trail to our overnight destinations. Ours is Oturihua, that central Otago location that features in weather bulletins as often experiencing our hottest or coldest temperatures across the nation. Perhaps that's why it's the annual venue for the motorcycling Brass Monkey Rally in midwinter, as well as owning the local country store, the community organises activities and upkeep of their local hall and public toilets on a roster, their outstanding example of Oturihua community cooperation. When we pedal in, the hosts at Crow's Nest Backpackers recognise us from our previous trip, offering both of us a generous slice of Christmas cake to go with a good brew of tea. As we secure our bikes for the night, in an old, now tilting shed in process of collapse, we see evidence of well-used bicycles of other backpackers, who we join in the common room. Chatting in the course of cooking our meal, it emerges that one is a Christchurch TV presenter. Another teaches at Christ's College and is biking with his family. There's a family from the North Island. Others come from overseas. As night takes over... We sleep well under that silent, so crystal-clear, star-filled sky. Tomorrow will be perfect weather to cycle on to Wedderburn, where the railway's good shed had gone on my previous visit, but is now reinstated on its former site and repainted in its original railway green. In fact, railway enthusiasts are transforming it into a rail-trail museum. The Otago Central Rail Trail Trust raises funds from distributing a map and guidebook as well as issuing rail trail passports that travellers stamp on the relevant page with a self-inking impression. The stations keep such stamps secure using replicas of the Railways Department phone boxes once linking stations up and down the railway line, independent of post and telegraph communications. Passports revenue goes to trail resurfacing, also fitting information displays into the traditional gangers huts that offer shelter from the elements along the line. Along with these fascinating reminiscences of familiar railways paraphernalia, I nurture a yearning to discover what cycling offers in far-off places. Switzerland and Japan, France and Britain... Everything that's about to happen is a new experience. My own ambitions are touched off by others' achievements. Chiyoye Nakagawa, former Muajima mayor, presents in 1954 a huge bell to the United Nations as a token of world peace. 
the bell resembles those that sound at any number of temples throughout Japan, except to have been cast in molten metal alloyed from coins contributed by 65 nations then comprising the newly formed United Nations. A private citizen, Mr. Nakagawa's aim is to remind the world of the imperative of peace so that never again there be an atom bomb attack such as fell upon Japan's cities Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. The World Peace Bell is in the inner court of the United Nations headquarters in New York. To this day, it stands on soil from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Since then, peace bell replicas, all cast from international coinage, have gone to many countries, including a rural New South Wales town of Cowra in Australia. Till COVID-19 comes, its community each year celebrates its Festival of International Understanding with a parade, fireworks display, balloons, and features a particular foreign culture. But there is a darker past. During World War II, Kaurer is where a prisoner of war camp detains captured Japanese and Italian military personnel. On 5th of August, 1944, at least 545 Japanese prisoners of war try to break out a Japanese bugle sounds at 2 a.m. It triggers their attempt to overwhelm machine guns and barbed wire perimeter fences. Four Australian guards and 231 Japanese die, with 108 prisoners wounded. The dead are laid to rest by the site of the POW camp just outside Kaura in a Japanese war cemetery, together with Japanese military who die in the attack on Darwin. It's the only such cemetery in Australia. It makes Kara the ideal town to accept a world peace bell made of many countries' coins. Given in 1990, it creates a remarkable friendship between Australians and Japanese coming to realise the futility of warfare. Another peace bell clings to the windswept rise overlooking the island Hokkaido in the north of Japan. On an earlier visit to Haliko's homeland, she accompanied me on a small motor train threading through snow in a wintry landscape to reach this, the most northern cape of Japan, Soya Misaki. From here it's a mere 43 kilometres across a strait to the Russian island of Sakhalin. In that freezing landscape, the thermometer hovers round minus 22 degrees Celsius by day, with ice floating through the shallow strait marking the border between these two nations which, historically, have often been at war. My presence as a Westerner must be unusual in midwinter, for locals react as if to a rare event. What strikes me is how New Zealand is perceived as the powerful advocate for peace it is when David Longy's government's policy in 1987 paves the way for us as a nation to become heralded as having an independent voice as a world peacemaker. That's the source of the idea to attract enthusiastic support from Mayor Gary Moore, Christchurch City Councillors and Botanic Gardens Director David Givens for a World Peace Bell to come to Christchurch, the first peace city in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I begin communicating with the World Peace Bell Association in Tokyo. Vice President Miniko Kaniko 
is delightfully chatty in emails, so the negotiations rocket along, despite the president, Tomikiro Yoshida's repute of occasionally withdrawing an offer of a peace bill at the last minute. All going well. We'll sign an agreement when I reach Tokyo to represent the New Zealand World Peace Bell Association. Now we're back, on bicycles, in warm weather, ready to ride south from the northern island of Hokkaido. I'm ignoring the advice of Japanese friends regarding an odyssey by bicycle as risky. They urge me not to do it. Maybe they think I'm just too old for such an adventure, saying, Our country has so many mountains. It's true that Lonely Planet Japan offers little encouragement to visit Cape Soya Misaki, unless the traveller likes the idea of reaching the very top of the country. It's a fact. The northernmost tip is hardly spectacular, the Cape being almost at sea level. I know Craig McLaughlin came here on his walking the length of Japan, but I wonder if any New Zealanders have come twice to this desolate place other than us. This is the real Japan, divorced from glittering lights of the world's giants in technology, Tokyo and Osaka, and estranged from glossy images of temples, even cherry blossoms. It's a harsh environment here, the last of the land in the north of Japan. Once it extended to offshore islands, yet in the uneasy settlement of borders at the end of World War II, the victorious allies awarded ownership of these offshore islands to Russia, which is in possession of them since. Long ago, the Japanese lived undisturbed on the south coast of Sakhalin Island, the first Russians reached the north of the island in the 1850s. The two nations agree in 1855 to share control of the island. That applies till 1875, when Russia acquires all of Sakhalin in exchange for taking possession of the volcanic Kuril Islands on the rim of the Pacific Ocean, yielding fur, fish, iron and sulphur. They remain Russian till today. It all happens out there, the cut and thrust of politics and international frontiers at Hokkaido's back door. Here are villages whose inhabitants over centuries fished to survive. Their bountiful catches of the past come under hostile eyes of Soviets who viewed the fishing resource as their own cod, salmon, for exploitation. Now Russians are more mellow, at least a little friendlier to Japanese fishing fleets and engaging in the same pursuit of economic sources of protein to feed humans. Here's where stands the sculpture commemorating 269 victims of the infamous Soviet fighter downing unarmed Korean Airlines Flight 007. On the coast of Sakhalin Island, it happens on the 1st of September in 1983, as the Korean aircraft nears the end of a flight from New York to Seoul. Everyone aboard dies, one an American congressman. Their bodies are taken to Soyomisaki, the nearest non-Russian landfall. Lest it be forgotten, the world's outrage is embodied in a sculpture showing a broken aircraft wing catching the strengthening breeze off the sea of Okotsk. Pouring over our maps back home, stamping feet to ward off a relentless chill of a South Island winter, I recall the night eight lashes windows of our home in Christchurch. Back then, I'm oblivious to the elements. 
I'd strung out a means to measure distance on a basic map displaying Japan's three main islands, Hokkaido, Honshu, Kyushu. On each, I carefully lay the string, then transfer that length to a ruler, which makes it easy to match against the scale as to distance. I'm assuming Japan is no more taxing than New Zealand to cycle. For so long, it seemed an unlikely dream. Now, we're at last here on Hokkaido. We reassemble our mountain bikes to begin our challenge. Achieving what we set out to do is crucial to success in our hope to bring a world peace bell to New Zealand. Halakul sees cloud blackening over the Cape, feels a few spots of rain. She's off enthusiastically pedalling over her native terrain. Left alone, my bicycle all reassembled, ready for the road. I experience a sense of desolation, but a lingering look at the World Peace Bell, beside it an earlier smaller version of the original United Nations World Peace Bell, and I'm off after her, chasing Halika, flicking through gears till I hit my stride in the warm green summer of Hokkaido. I'll soon be hearing as we pass, do your best. Sometimes, they might add, thank you for coming and doing this in our country. We cycle into a small village, Fujimi, 42 kilometers from the Cape, Soyamisaki. We'll be pleased to stay the night. Our hosts equally excited. Yokoso, her welcome, which might have been heard in Russia. The custom is to provide guests with indoor slippers, but I conclude that they're never comfortable on Westerners' feet. It's a peril for me to mount almost vertical staircases leading to our tatami room. We appreciate the friendliness of Yuko and her husband, Yoshio. Yuko's cooking is superb. There's also the sheer luxury of sharing a soak in the onsen with rugged local fishermen who rarely have Westerner in their midst, but occasionally visiting Russian fishermen. It's being in one's birthday suit. That's a great leveler. Previous visits to Japan taught me the protocol of public baths. Wash first under a handheld shower, and then soak. Before dressing, I stand on the electronic scales. 87.7 kilograms, it stares back at me in bold black figures. But how's a bike expected to stand up to that weight? It won't. What we're soon to discover, before we leave this island, we'll have a mechanical failure if the bicycle bracket gradually works loose weakening the frame as it loses tension. Something has to be done soon. We lack that special tool to tighten the bolts, not the familiar nut and screw of old technology. Meanwhile, we're worried the bracket will fail us. We can't find a professional bicycle mechanic here in the wilderness of Hokkaido. It'll have to hang on till we reach a city. When we do, another issue emerges. Money. In Hakodate, with 260,000 people, third largest city in Hokkaido, it's our opportunity to catch up on chores, avoiding cycling in rain that warns us it's the season soon to expect typhoons. Unsuspectingly, I go to get money out of my visa account and it won't work. That's strange. Advertising visa splashed over every ATM in sight, yet every time I try, nothing. It won't work. Frustrated, I go to the foreign exchange clerk in a bank. Their machine rejects my card. 
One of the staff holds up my visa card for all to see. They gaze upon it in awe, as if it were come from outer space. Their polite conclusion is that it uh, might be difficult for me to get a cash advance from it in, in Japan. Outside in the rain, as I fume, waiting for the traffic lights, a Japanese woman moves closer, smiles, and shares her umbrella. Wondering what to do, it's by chance I discover the humble post office with a machine that does bit cash in Japan. From then on, we find the post office machines always accept my international visa card, spotting the signs even in the small rural towns of the humble post offices comes to mean cash. Posters are our guide, too, to the bike shops to ask about my bicycle's loosened lower bracket. There are action shots of cycling stars on posters pinned up as if to lure customers in. Haliko's detective work turns up untidy, tiny bike shops whose owners look upon my mountain bike as if it were rocket science. My model, called Giant, is designed in America and built in Taiwan, yet its Shimano componentry must surely be from Japan. How is it so hard to find someone who knows how to maintain it? As my frustration grows, Haliko adopts patience and persistence and thinks I should pursue both. I'm not to make disparaging remarks. We resign ourselves to the task of looking for yet another bicycle repair shop, expecting it'll be the, the same story. Display advertising of Trek and Giant, as well as Lance Armstrong, attract us to a small business of Miho Shokai. The proprietor is cautious, he says. Repairing the loosening bracket will depend on whether he's got the tools for the job or not. He'll need to check. We're to come back in a couple of hours. Success! He finds the right tool among his new stock for sale. Once the bracket is dismantled and tightened on both sides, he adjusts a few things to ensure my bike is running sweetly. Three thousand yen later, we're on our way. In New Zealand currency, in 2004, that's less than $40. An excellent job, for which we're grateful. Another crisis averted. Persistence pays off. As we join the roll-on, roll-off ferry in the northernmost island, it's almost empty. The captain, eager to set off over calm seas from Hokkaido port of Hakodate, aims to reach the other side of the strait before does the typhoon. It's already well into the afternoon after the 60-kilometre crossing as we and our bikes disembark at the almost deserted berth of Oma on the northern tip of Honshu. It's a tiny town, clean, quiet, friendly, with few schools and supermarkets, and it has an impressive temple at its centre. This would be typical of any other town in northern Japan. Here's room at an inn for us to lock our bikes in a garage while we go to stock up on provisions. The owner offers to drive us to their nearest convenience store. He knows too well how high winds, speeding like a Shinkansen bullet train, are about to hit Honshu. Over the next few hours, destined to wreck fishing boats, even ships with Russian and Indonesian sailors missing at sea. The typhoon's first sign, as we relax in the inn, is pulsating of walls responding to rising winds. 
The 14-year-old daughter of our hosts is at the reception desk and wearing a T-shirt, on the front of which she realises I'm reading the words in English. She smiles self-consciously. I surmise a guest had left it behind, so she wore it. The T-shirt with the words, Relax, it's only sex. Presumably, her parents don't read English. Further adventures of Roy Sinclair and Harlequin at the same time next week from Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.